socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. We are here. Episode 100 of You Don't Have to Yell, and it is your resident bod boy of nonpartisan political podcasting. Now, over the last 99 episodes, one listener has paid extra, 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 extra close attention to each and every word that's been said, and that would be none other than the big Gino, Jason Putney, YDHTY's tireless producer, who takes my stuttered mess of an interview and polishes it into the gold you listen to every week. So I thought it fitting to celebrate our 100th episode by interviewing him and getting his take on everything he's heard, what he's learned, what surprised him, and what were some of the biggest challenges in producing this every week. He also makes a fairly special announcement, which I'll address at the end of the episode, but I don't want to steal Gino's thunder. So, without further ado, the snake killer, the man himself, the big Gino, Jason Putney. I have with me the big Gino himself, the man who's produced all 100 of those episodes, Jason Putney right here. Hello, Jason. Hello. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing wonderful. I'm doing wonderful today. Thank you for asking. And we're here, number one, to celebrate YDHUI turning 100, in a manner of speaking. Um, and I'm also bringing some sad news. Well, maybe not sad, not ha- melancholy, bittersweet. So uh, the Gino, big Gino himself, who has carried the team for... 100 episodes will be leaving YDHTY at the end of July, which is very sad for me, Jason. Very sad for me. But I also, you know, for for those of you who have never developed your own podcast before or, uh, or, or, or never kind of seen the inner workings, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And I think, Jason, you'd probably agree between me and some of the guests and our proclivity for for verbosity, for verbosity, <laughs> yeah. there's a lot more work to be done. Huh? So, so, oh, I mean, like anything, like any type of production, be it a podcast or a movie or what, or an album, which I used to do or what have you, there's always stuff. There's so much work that goes into it on the back end that the listener or the viewer never understands. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. And so like, for you know it's it's not just me sitting here talking it's like it, there's there's a lot of work that goes into editing making it concise then of course the sound quality and all that and and you're the man who is who has carried the day until now um well thank think- you yeah and that's just the engineering side of the uh, that, uh, side of the house too i mean uh, the 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 producer and people confuse producer from engineer but yeah, the engineer is the one who gets rid of all the coughs, the burps, the farts, the the silence longer than three seconds between sentences, that kind of thing, to keep it tight and snappy. But the producer helps you craft some of the questions, uh, writes one-liners, helps with booking guests and and partners with the direction of the show, that kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah I mean, each of us in, in any 
in any small organization like you and I or any small company, uh, people tend to wear many hats. That's the other thing, too, is I think the one thing you, I've really appreciated about your role and about everything you've done here is, and you know this because you listen to all the conversations, I really like enjoy talking with the folks I talk to. And sometimes that means I'm not always sticking to the topic at hand. And you've, I mean, there are some episodes out there I can think of, and we're not going to name names, but folks, just to peel back the curtain, there are some episodes where I've been absolutely terrible. And I had no idea how we were going to polish this turd. And (laughs) right. That's like, there's a term polish a turd is actually a term in our vernacular. um, Thanks to some of the episodes I've done. So, um, so needless to say, folks, uh, hopefully the next 100 is not a trail of turds. Well, we, we've got, we've got some plans in the works to keep that from happening, but, um, yeah, you know, I was trying to think of a good analogy of like what a producer does. You tell me if this is right. Cause I went through a bunch of, a bunch of different, like, uh, permutations. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's like, I was thinking it's like, almost like, like Alfred and Batman, but it's like not Alfred, like the 1960s Alfred, like it's Alfred, like the Michael Caine one, mm. you know, from the Dark Knight series who like, who, who basically like makes sure the gear is all there, does all the background research, kind of makes sure that Batman has a plan. And then Batman's the one who goes in and like falls through windows and busts up the Batmobile and tears up his costume. I don't know if that's that- a fit or not. That's a really good analogy, and I'm, I'm glad you clarified the 60s versus the Michael Caine one. But, oh, yeah, man. No, um, no, there's going to be no dancing. That's a really good uh, analogy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Alfred was the Michael Caine one, was, was if I remember, uh, uh, it's been a while since I've seen the movies, but he really partnered with Batman to come up with the design of yep. the uniforms and everything. And, and, and uh, uh, Batman was the one who executed the plan. But he was on the back end. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, they were uh, they were really a pair. So, yeah. so yes, I so yes, I am retiring. But uh, you know, the 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 good thing is that um, you know, Dan, you and I personally have known each other for f- over forty years. And the good thing about guys who've known each other for a while like this and are, and are friends that you know, doors never truly close. So maybe something will happen in the future. I think the coolest thing about this about the the last, you know, almost two years now has been being able to do this with the same kid I, you know, rode bikes with and played D&D with and yeah, did all sorts of recordings with back when we were back when we were kids and just being able oh, to continue it's, that. It's, it's been great. Yeah, and, and and who now goes by the name Snake Killer. So yeah, it's that's been right. Great. <laughs> the Snake Killer. The did snake I ever tell killer. you that story? <laughs> no, you got it to tell me the tell me the Snake Killer story it's really stems from the differences between the, the North and the South. And it, it's kind of like, I think earlier I, I said, I said, y'all, when you and I first started talking and it's, it, it's funny. Do you know where the exact place where people start saying that you've dri- driven up and down the East coast on your way to Florida when you vacation and stuff, do you know yeah. the exact location where that line changes? Uh, Richmond, Virginia. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> yes. Yeah, specifically the language changes in Richmond, but then slightly north of that is Fredericksburg. And, and there are some other things change as well, like people's driving etiquette and chivalry and the definition of barbecue happens somewhere in between Fredericksburg and 
uh, Richmond, but definitely the y'all thing starts in starts in Richmond. And there's three of them too for all the English majors out there. Y'all is singular. Y'alls is plural, and all y'alls is plural possessive. <laughs> plural possessive. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's so, I didn't I didn't realize there were so many layers of y'all. Oh, definitely. But the but the whole thing of the the snakeular thing, and that's really it's the differences between the north and south. And I'm going to get the people for the ethical treatment of animals all up in my mug, but uh, but that's okay. You got to understand how it rains in North Carolina. I mean, much like Florida in the late afternoon, you know this because you vacation there. After the heat has built up all day in the atmosphere and the water cycle has filled up the clouds like a hillbilly at a keg party, the sky just opens up and vomits just a torrential downpour for for a half hour. And then the streets turn into rivers, right? Yeah. So to accommodate that amount of water, the streets have drains that are three feet wide by a foot tall and there's no grate. It's just a big, scary, rectangular hole in the ground. And these drains are infamous for ruining many a child's afternoon as their ball disappears down the drain, (laughs) invariably with somebody's dad chasing after it. And sometimes we lose the ball and the the adults. It's like, where's dad? I don't know. I last saw him chasing after Johnny's ball. But the other thing about these drains is that animals use them. Uh, neighborhood cats are often seen slinking in and out of these drains. And you think, you know, to yourself, no way in hell is he coming up in my bed tonight. Mm-hmm. So one day the families were out in the cul-de-sac and the dads were grouped together, having a few adult beverages and moms were up on the front porch chit-chatting and the, the children, mostly little girls, uh, in their beautiful yellow and pink sundresses were playing in the street. And it was a picture perfect day. And all of a sudden, one of the girls starts screaming and pointing at the drain and out crawls this shadowy black devilish looking serpent longer than the drain, probably four, four and a half feet and just evil looking. And my first instinct, and here's where the animal rights people won't be happy with me. And I will admit that I could have behaved differently, but my first instinct was to get the shotgun and, and use a one ounce slug to make a new pair of leather shoes or a snakeskin shoes. But, uh, but in this neighborhood, you can't be doing that. So I went into the garage with a, a few of the dads and I grabbed a shovel, which I sharpen, by the way, always sharpen your shovels, listeners. Mm-hmm. And I cut, and I cut the snake's head off. <laughs> yeah. And I kicked it down the drain. And now, now that now I know it was probably a Carolina rat snake, which are real big and mean looking. I mean, they can get six feet long, but they're yeah. harmless. They're harmless to humans. And I, and I shouldn't have done that. They go after rodents and such, but, but, but that just really speaks to the, to the differences between the North and the South. I mean, people up, up North would be more, let's say, inclined to call 911 and, and people down South are more inclined to, you know, get them, get the varmint, get them. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we have coyotes in our neighborhood and, you know, a couple years ago, they were like, uh, they were walking around in the daytime, you know, they were like out in the neighborhood in the daytime and somebody called the police and said, Hey, you know, there are coyotes walking around. And the police response was, Oh yeah, they do that. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And it was like, yeah, I know they do that. That's why I'm calling you. I want them to stop doing that. You know, while kids are out and such. And so they should have called the animal control officer is what they should have done. Well, yeah, in hindsight. Yeah. And I decided to go out and start shopping for a crossbow because I figure, you know, like, you I really? 
Yeah, because I don't want to go firing a gun <laughs> in my neighborhood. You know, it's just that doesn't ha- well. That's another story. It does does happen, but um, but I didn't I didn't want to go firing a gun in my neighborhood. So you know, I figured this would be silent, whatnot. And then I started looking around. I'm like, first off, like, am I really going to be driving around in my car with a crossbow? And if I am, and I see a coyote, am I really going to like you know get into my shooting stance, like kneel down in the middle of the street to fire at this thing? Like Ted Nugent out in Montana. Yeah, and then last part about it is like once I started looking at like the ones within affordable price range, you know, everybody complained that they shot crooked. And I was like, the last thing I need to do is like try and shoot a coyote and end up hitting somebody like sitting watching TV in their house or something like that. So, (laughs) but you know, it's funny you bring up the snake story because one of the areas where I think you've been so helpful in guiding the approach of the show has been in calling me on what we've dubbed Northeast moments because, Mm. you know, my goal in all this was to build something that was nonpartisan, but also to build something that would give people of all political stripes space to sit and enjoy. And that doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. And that doesn't mean that like, you're always going to agree with what I say. But what it means is you should at least feel like your opinion got a fair shake. And I remember there was some stuff we did in the very beginning that you called me on, which was really helpful. It was always helpful having your, you in the back of my head. You know what I'm interested in? You know, one of the things that I, I made a list of questions too that I was that I was interested in asking you as you, you know, depart for for greener pastures or the, you know, Batman Butler retirement home, wherever, you know. I won't be wearing spandex. Yeah. One question I had for you is, you've listened to every episode, every episode in depth. And did you ever find yourself listening to someone you disagreed with, but where you got where they were coming from? Like, was there ever anybody you listened to who you're like, I really don't agree with this person, but they totally make sense? Yes. Recently, actually. Julian Go hmm. was, um, uh, I guess, a bit of a challenging episode for me personally. Yeah, uh, because because of the viewpoint that he was coming from, and, and I, you know, he's factually correct in everything he said. It was just a different. It was just just a different worldview. You know, he made a lot of good points, which I which I respected. But at the same time, it's like, don't you have anything good to say about cops? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he was thankful the last time he called nine one one. I mean, he said that violent crime makes up less than 5% of the, the calls. And the point being, you know, do we really need heavily armed police and that kind of thing? And, and that's true. 5% of calls are violent, not that many. But still, across the country, that means there are 13 million, that's 5% of the total, 13 million violent interactions per year. And every one of those could result in injury or death to not only the officer, but an innocent bystander as well. So, um, no, having, having said that, you know, I, I do disagree with some of the spending that some of the cops, uh, have, I mean, the departments have a police department in West Virginia has a tank. Do they really need a tank? Yeah. Um, other departments have NVGs, night vision goggles for 10,000 a piece. And I'm sorry, but you don't need, in my opinion, you don't need NVGs in a well at major metropolitan area. This isn't the jungles of Vietnam. 
But yeah, it was it was challenging to hear a lot of his viewpoints because I know being a cop is hard work, and they and they do deserve our our respect and funding in in a lot of cases. So that was a that was a, a challenging episode. I'd love to talk with him more and and uh, and uh, gain a mutual understanding. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that one up because that so the issue of police reform. And I'll call it that. It's 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 kind of a misnomer because it's not really what I was driving at. But the issue of police reform is one that I wanted to do for a long time. And it was and and I, I think for a couple reasons. I, I don't think you cannot have an opinion on police reform. You know, I don't I don't think it's it doesn't do anybody any good for you not to have an opinion. If you don't have an opinion on police reform, you are not supporting the two primary parties involved, which are law enforcement and people of color, right? You have mm-hmm. to take a side. Not I shouldn't say take a side. You have to have an opinion. And the 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 tricky part about it is, and, and part of the reason I stayed away from it is because it was very, very difficult for me to find somebody who would be able to speak to all parties involved you know, and be fair to all parties involved too, you know, that's tough to do. Yeah. To have, to have both sides wrapped up in a single person. That's pretty tough. It was tough. I think, honestly, I think Eddie Campa probably did the best job. Me too. You know, don't you? I mean, I, I feel, I feel like he, cause he, he, he under, he, he really, he got both sides of it. You know, he's a Latino police chief. You know, he, 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 he understands both sides of that equation. And, and, and I think what I felt was, uh, you know, if I were to boil down what was important about both, um, you know, I think Eddie was super important for people to understand that police weren't looking at the, the murder of George Floyd and thinking that's okay. And that's like, that's normal policing, you know, um, and and I think it's important for people to understand that. And I think it's important for people to understand that, like, you know, police, like teachers, they're professionals. And a lot of their job and, and a lot of the effectiveness of doing their job depends on conditions on the ground. And, and how you police in Massachusetts is going to be much different than other parts of the country. You know, I want to dive a little bit more into, like, Julian specifically. Because did mm-hmm. you, when you heard what he was saying, was it like, I agree with it? I agree with I agree with what he's saying, but there's really it's not couched in any terminology that's giving the police credit for the job they do. Was that the issue, or, or was it something else? Kinda, yeah. That that's that's fair. Yeah, like I said, everything was factual and talking about how modern day policing in, in, in uh, tactics and and structures in many ways are a result of uh, historically. Uh, how it was done uh, in in many other countries, and, and all, all that is true. Mm-hmm. But w- when he when he talked about uh, police being um, heavily armed, I mean, I just I'm wondering, would he want to be a cop and not be armed? I mean, let me give you a scenario. Imagine you pull over a guy at 2 a.m. for a ru- this happens all the time. You pull over a guy at 2 a.m. for a routine traffic stop, and you run his information and discover there's a warrant out for his arrest. So. Uh, because of a rape of a minor, let's say, and you you ask the driver to step out of the car, and he comes at you with a knife. He grapples you to the ground, and he's holding the knife three inches from your chest as you struggle to get get his hold his arms away from your chest. 
and your backup shows up finally and is able to cuff the guy and, and get him off you. Then as you're dusting yourself off, you get a call for a fatal car wreck. You then have to drive to the victim's home, knock on the door at 3 a.m. and explain to his parents that their son was just killed in a car wreck. Please, <laughs> being a cop is hard work and they, and they really do oh, deserve our, our admiration. Yeah, I think there's... Oh, go on. Sorry, I'm cutting no, you off No, at, at, at the same time, you're right. They would, also, they would also admit that the whole George Floyd and Derek Chauvin thing, it was the last four minutes that got him in trouble. Mm-hmm. It was nine minutes on the ground. It was the last four when he was brazenly, defyingly looking up at the, into the people's iPhones as they were recording as, as if to dare them. Like, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead and record me. Mm-hmm. We'll see what happens. Like it was the last four minutes that, that, that got him. Yeah. I, I think, you know, it's funny too. I was talking with a friend of mine in law enforcement and he was talking about the other two people who stood beside him. And he, he was saying, you know, those two people were officers in training. So yeah. in your standard police environment, if an officer in training were to say, hey, I don't think you should do that, the cop would have told him to fuck off, you know? Right. That's like, so, so it does get, it does, you know, these situations do get complex. And, um, you know, and I'd say a lot of that too comes down to, you know, the level of violence in, in a society, you know, and when I say a society, uh, I, I, I consider America broken up into multiple societies and multiple, you know, regional societies, so to speak. And, you know, one of the earlier episodes we did on guns, one of the things Mm -hmm. that Mike, I I don't know if you remember Mike, the gun guy. Of course. Yeah. I mean, the thing he said is he said, you know, Massachusetts had a low instance of gun violence before they ever passed a gun control regulation. And his general sentiment was that it's really a, a culture of violence that creates these situations. And, you know, if you, I mean, the thing he pointed out is, you can look state by state and you can see that there are certain states that have a very high instance of gun crime and gun homicide and a very high instance of homicide on the whole, you know? And, and so, and I think part of the reason I say that too is because, you know, to me, supporting the police isn't just say, isn't just, you know, thanking them for their job, but also it's like making sure they're not put in harm's way. You know, and I don't, I don't know if we do as good of a job as a society as we should. Yeah. And, 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 you know, allowing them to stay in their lane. They're not psychologists. Yeah. When they show up for domestic disputes, they end up being a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's just not, they're not trained in that. I mean, yes, they're, they're yes, they're, they're trained in de-escalation and that kind of thing, but yeah, you know, um, but we, we ask them to do way too much. Way yeah. too much. And uh and that's and that's unfair. Yeah. Yeah. I I I I think you know the one interesting thing too, speaking of doing way too much. So in the Julian Go episode, um, one of the one of the people that he talks about a lot is this guy named August Vollmer, uh, who was considered the the father of modern policing. Interestingly enough, August Vollmer actually said that drugs were not a police matter. So this is way before the, the war on drugs. So the father of modern policing actually said that drugs are a health issue and, and a societal issue and should be dealt with by civil authorities, not by the police. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I consider that to be a health issue myself. The trouble is when it becomes illegal, 
now it becomes the cop's job to enforce the law. Yep. So, so w- what do you do? Make them make them legal just because just because you want it to be a health issue? I don't know. I mean, I'm in favor of decriminalizing or making certain drugs completely legal myself. That's a whole other topic, but uh, yeah. it's a, it's a it's a tricky area. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll open up a little bit um, because you and I have known each other a, a long time, and I'm I feel comfortable enough saying this on, uh, you know, on recording. But you you know, I have my history of inebriation, shall we call it? You know, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and and I I certainly like to to at times tip them back more than the average person, and um and it was. It's funny when I started to come to grips with like the latent, uh, you know, just the latent levels of anxiety that I carry around with me. And when I really started to recognize that and really take measures to work against it, the, the interesting thing is my desire for any sort of intoxication waned. And, and I think the, the thing I always think is like, there's nobody out there who's looking for a fix who isn't in some amount of pain. No. You know? Why, why, else, would, why else would you do it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, and, it's, and it's a long way from the military used to call alcoholism misconduct. Yeah. Misconduct. It's not. It's just, I mean, it comes across that way for sure. As some drunk guy is trying to break into your place at 3 a.m. Yeah, it comes across that way. But no, it's, I mean, these, these people need help. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I don't want to like take too stark of a turn um, uh, in, in my questions, but, you know, you talked about Julian Go and how that was a tough one for you. Mm-hmm. Was there ever an episode that changed your mind on something? Not really changed my mind, but um, made, me, uh, made me realize, well, I guess in a way, made me realize how bad the situation was, put it that way. Uh, and the answer is gerrymandering. Huh. Yeah, I didn't know a lot about it. I knew it was bad, but beyond that, I just wasn't that uh, well informed about gerrymandering. Let's say uh, a year and a half ago, two years ago, whenever we, whenever I became involved in this thing. So yeah, um, yeah. Since then, I've I've learned a lot about it because of your guests, and I've read a lot about it. And um, I I don't know if it's if it would be unfair to call it a almost a legalized form of rigging. You could say, yeah, oh, for sure, and, and and the Supreme Court has said that that gerrymandering is quote beyond the reach of the federal courts, which is right because you know that's it's up to the states. But but what do we do about it is is the question because you can really unfairly tip the scales in one way or the other. Yeah, I know a lot of the states now have independent commissions that are in charge of monitoring voting districts, and the other thing that I've read. A lot of states have done is is drawn. Um, uh, what do they call it? Voter determined districts. So when mm-hmm. the voters are split fifty fifty, the reps are too. Yeah, and maybe those are some solutions. But uh, yeah, gerrymandering was probably the thing that uh, changed my mind in the sense that I didn't know too much about it at first, and then I came away going, "Ooh, this is a problem." Forty percent, folks. That's the number of people in America who don't identify with either major party, bigger than either of them in terms of voters. 60% 
is the number of Americans who feel another major party is needed. Both are a signal something's wrong, and both are a signal Americans are looking for something more, and that is why you listen to You Don't Have to Yell. Now, nothing's going to change until we open up the two-party system to real political competition, and in the right numbers, we can make this happen. So here are two ways you can help. Number one, if you dig the content on YDHTY and you know someone else who would, please share this show with them. The goal of YDHTY is not just to push for electoral reform, but to get the center back into the conversation. And this podcast grows by word of mouth. Number two, if you want to take action in your state, visit rankthevote.us. It's an organization focused on growing the ranked choice voting movement in all 50 states. And while there are no shortages of ways to reform elections in this country, ranked choice voting is by far the most practical and effective way to make elected officials accountable to the majority of voters, not just the parties. 2020 is going to be a decade of change, and I hope you'll choose to join me in making the change for the better. And now, back to the episode. I do feel like the two major parties have become very, very good at slicing congressional districts in a way that keeps their people in uh, and, and makes us all more polarized or makes the House more polarized as a result. Definitely. And pro- probably probably another one is that I, that I just thought of as well is uh, didn't really change my opinion about it because I... because I wasn't against it, but now as a result of the show and a lot of the guests that you've had on is um, ranked choice. I definitely want to learn more about ranked choice voting because that seems that's appealing in many ways. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. I mean, and I'm kind of in, I'm I'm in a bit of a bubble because, you know, I'm active in that, that area too. In my mind, the best system is the one that comes the closest to what we need to do that has the highest likelihood of being adopted. Yeah. And I, I just think rank choice is that. Like I feel in an ideal scenario, wave a magic wand, I would change the entire United States to the German model of proportional rep- representation, which in my opinion is the best form of democracy in existence right now. But you're right, it needs it needs to actually be achievable. It needs to actually be implemented, pass and then imp- be implemented. Yeah. Well, that's it because because like what does it matter if nobody's going to vote for it? It's like, uh, you know, Microsoft versus Linux, you know, (laughs) right? Like there's some hardcore Linux dudes who are like, ah, Linux is where it's at. But what are you going to call Linux support? Right. And and along those lines, if anyone, I recommend anyone go to YouTube and look up something like Steve Jobs handles an insult, something like that. Steve Jobs gets insulted. It's, it's It's this developer asking him, Basically, how come you haven't used this programming language? Why have you used Java instead of this other programming language? And and re- you know how you know what a tyrant Steve Jobs was and everything. But he really handled it. This was a younger Steve Jobs, and he really handled it uh, graciously. It's a it's a it's a masterclass on how to handle public criticism from one of your employees in front of three thousand people. It's it's one. It's about five minutes long. It's really good. Okay. Is yeah. there like a synopsis or should we just go to YouTube and, and check no, it out? Go and, go and watch it. Yeah. All right. There you go, folks. Yeah. There you go. We all got to listen.
You know, you mentioned you didn't know a lot about gerrymandering. Were there any other topics or any other things that really surprised you? Yeah. Jason Gaida, the attorney who helps people getting denied uh, getting a gun permit. Yes. Uh, that, that really surprised me. That really surprised me because as, as a gun owner myself, you know, the Second Amendment is, is near and dear to my heart, despite I understand people's criticisms of it being outdated and all that stuff. But as he was talking, all the hoops that, no, granted, he's up in Massachusetts, so you have to take, you have to take that into account. Other states are different, of course, but all the hoops that people have to jump through in a state where guns aren't a problem anyway, to have all those regulations, all the paperwork, um, the firearms training course is, is, what did he say, seven or eight hours long, and how much the laws can vary town by town. If, if the person even knows your name, he doesn't like it, he can just decide not to grant you the permit. All, all that stuff was just really, uh, really surprising. Here in, here in North Carolina, you walk in, you walk out. <laughs> yeah. So that was, that was one thing. The other thing that surprised me was David O'Sullivan, um, yes. the Irishman who moved to what, what state was it? Ohio Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah. Just surprised hearing it. And I kind of knew this anyway, but just re- hearing him say it, it really rung true that, uh, hearing him say that American food is so bad compared to Ireland's food, uh, food that he had to resort to hunting, um, just to get fresh food. Yeah. <laughs> Even even Japan, I was been watching videos about Japan recently, and even like Japanese gas station food is is actually pretty good. It it just seems that the quality, the freshness, and the nutrition in uh, in, in average low cost food in many other countries is so much better than the U.S. Oh yeah, it's like like if you popped into any random house in the U.S. and you said, "Make me a sandwich, please," using whatever you have on hand right now, what are you going to get? You're going to get two slices of white bread. With, with the highly processed additives and flour and everything. And maybe you'll get turkey, but it's going to have sodium and preservatives like nitrates, which, ca- which can cause cancer. And you're going to get mayo, which is 50% of your daily recommended sodium. And, and if you popped into any, rec- any random house in Ireland, you would get a ham sandwich because that's what they do. <laughs> yeah. but, but the ham would be freshly slaughtered like yesterday. And maybe the, the bread would be like some kind of stone mill ground kind of bread. And, I mean, Europeans don't allow carcinogens in their food, like potassium bromate. Do you know what potassium bromate is? I don't, but I, I, it sounds delicious. It's the, it's, the, it's the additive they add to flour to make it white. You know what also, also potassium bromate is? It's the thing that yoga mats are made out of. Delicious. It's the, it's the squishy, rubbery thing that yoga mats are made out of, and, and we eat that. Europe will pull a product off the market if there's a suspicion that it could cause harm. Kind of more of a better safe than sorry approach. Yeah. Um, and the U.S. operates under the innocent and, until proven guilty approach. So that takes a bunch of people to uh, mass amounts of people to have a bad reaction to something. And then it takes a lawsuit for the company to finally pull it off. No developed country aside from the U.S. allows food manufacturers to decide the safety of chemicals put into their own food. That's mm-hmm. insane. I mean, the Food and Drug Administration, I used to work for the FDA. The Food and Drug Administration doesn't regulate food. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. So anyway, that's, uh, I got off on a tangent about food, but David O'Sullivan really reminded me of, of the differences between Europe, uh, uh, Europe and the U.S. 
The key difference or the way we work in, in the U.S. is our mantra is it is really ultimately up for the individual to decide what's best for them. Whereas in Europe, it's more we will decide collectively as a society what's best. And so it's not necessarily, you know, a lot of times people say, well, the government decides for you. Well, not exactly, because the government there's the, in Ireland, for example, or in Germany, um, the governments are, are, are fairly reflective of what the people think, you know, but yeah. um, and, and I think there's, you know, another example I'll give you is is if you go into pharmacies overseas, like I remember I was in Ireland uh, a few years back. And I had a cold. And so I went into a pharmacy and, you know, I'm looking for the cold medicine. I look, oh, it's at the far end of the store. So I go to the far end and I'm looking up and down the shelf. And then I look next to me and there's this dude at the register and I realize I'm behind the counter. Right. Like, so I go back. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Me, <laughs> like, like, so I go back, I wait in line, you know, and I get to the end and then I tell the guy my symptoms and he gives me the cold medicine. And at first I was kind of like, well, why do I have to go through this guy to get it? And then I thought to myself, you know, that guy probably went to like a pharmacological school or probably took a couple of courses. And, you know, my only qualification for being able to choose my own cold medicine is that I watch television, you know, like that's, <laughs> where, that's where I learned about it. You just respond to advertisements. Yeah. yeah, that's, well, that's it. Cause do you, I mean, you know, you go and maybe you buy the brand name, maybe you buy like the generic NyQuil instead of the brand name NyQuil, but you're still buying NyQuil, you know, you're still buying something that does the same thing. And, and, and I don't know, I, I, I wrestle with that because I do feel, you know, getting, getting back to the quality of food if in Europe, the food, the quality of food is such that it, it's, it's almost in line with what people pay extra for here. At uh, Whole Foods or yeah. someplace, yeah. Trader yeah, that's Joe's. it. Yeah. That's it. People will go to Whole Foods and they'll pay a premium to know that there isn't all this garbage in their food, where in Europe, they're just like, yeah, we're just not going to put that garbage in their food. And I think that that's like, you know, to an extent, you can say, yes, we're going to let people choose. But the flip side of it is, is if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you can eat, you know, you can pay whatever, 25 or 50 cents less for the deli meat that's going to kill you versus the stuff that isn't, you know, you're probably going to roll the dice. And so I, I think there's, there's, there's room for us to move a little further towards a European model. Yeah. They just, they got to make it affordable. I mean, pe people are struggling anyway. They just really find, have to find some way to make it affordable because food is already, uh, people's food bills are already expensive enough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. And I think like, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know whether we just have to accept that, like, is it okay for us to pay, you know, 50 cents or a dollar more for that hamburger? So the person giving it to you can have health insurance. You know, is it like, these are all legitimate questions. And, and I do feel like they're, and, and, and too, like, I think the area where you and I are probably most aligned and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like neither of us feel the federal government does a particularly good job, uh, executing these things. And ideally if people would do this at the state level, we'd be in much better shape. But at the same time, I'm telling a state how to do their business. So I'm sort of contradicting my own philosophy. 
Yeah, well, yeah, there, there, there's, yeah, there's lots of contradicting questions going on because, you know, I mean, libertarians would say, well, is it, is it their job to? Mm-hmm. Their only job is to maintain the public schools and fix the potholes in the road. That's it. Other than that, back off because mm-hmm. freedom. Other people are saying, yeah, but I want health insurance and I can't afford it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, we have 3,000 miles of land here with, with 300 million people. It's tough. All those people have different needs, and everyone is struggling, and uh, yet everyone thinks they know the right answer. So it's just, it's just, uh, it's just real challenging. Yeah. What do you think you've learned about America in the last two years of, the, of doing these episodes? Like, what, what, how has that shaped your view of the country? The first episode that I did, uh, episode five, Trevor Barlow. Yeah. The third party candidate for governor of Vermont. Um, just listening him to listening to him talk about the uphill battle he had as as you know, sort of the outcast, the third party, with very limited budget, all the miles he drove. I forget how many towns, how many hundreds of towns he yes. said there are, there are in Vermont, and he and he visited every single one. Um, and how he was shunned by the television stations and didn't get equal time, and just hearing him talk about that. That just it just proved to so more be more direct answer to your question would be I've learned how messed up our voting system is. <laughs> yeah, right. Trevor was one of my favorite guests. Yeah, it's funny. I always wonder because you know I'll see folks who like download all every episode, and obviously like you you always hate the first stuff you did, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I, I always wonder like like looking at photos of yourself with your old haircut. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like like so they're going back to like you know. Me wearing like, I don't know, what's out of bell, date? Bell bottoms. The other thing that keeps coming up in these answers is like the voting system, the voting system. That's the reason why we talk about what we talk about. You know, like even yeah. I think I think for me, you know, the gun month in, in October of 2019, that was the most interesting one for me because it fundamentally changed my view of guns in the country. Good. Yeah. I remember you saying either during that show or one of the subsequent shows that you said something like, I'll paraphrase, something like there are people out there living in our country who have legit bears in their front yard. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I've I've, I've used mine to trim trees. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. For branches that you can't reach and you don't want to get up on the ladder or maybe the long pole with the, with the blade at the end of it breaks or something. I've, I've shot down branches that I can't reach with a, with a gun, like dead branches. Does everybody do that? No, I'm just a little crazy. But okay, okay. No, so I mean, but but certainly for people that um, uh, uh, people like uh, sheep farmers, you know, uh, who want to scare the the wolf away from from their livestock. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole it's it's not. We don't view it as a weapon. I mean, it's a, it's a self defense weapon, but it's 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 a tool. Yeah, it's a tool that lots of rural America uses to aid in their day-to-day. In my mind, and and the thing that the gun episode really taught me is that the gun issue is, is an issue that neither side has any interest in solving. It is strictly a fundraising issue. And, (laughs) you know, every time like Beto O'Rourke or, Elizabeth Warren says, we're going to take your AR-15 away. That is more money in the hands of Democratic candidates. That is more money 
in the hands of Republican candidates, and that is more money in the hands of people who sell AR-15s. You know, it is it is because the the reality is, if you look at the bulk of gun violence out there, it is well. First, there are suicides. You know, which yeah, which I I think we've decided as a society is not necessarily our job to solve or, you know, not outlaw. Again, that's probably more on the mental health side of things. So that's, that's the biggest portion, right? Statistically, if you Mm -hmm. want a gun, you're more likely to shoot yourself than anybody else. Okay. Then there's street, you know, there's homicides, right? The majority of homicides are done with handguns. That's right. Or knives. Yeah. And so, and even, but if, even if we just restrict it to gun crime, they're handguns. The, the only reason the assault rifle is under fire is because that is the one where if you live in a safe white neighborhood, that's the gun you are most likely to get killed with. Yeah, well, that, that, those, those are the ones that where mass shootings happen. Mass shootings don't happen with handguns, and they're scary yeah. looking. They're scary looking because they have the Picatinny rails on top where you can attach a laser scope or your toaster oven or any number of things you want to attach on there. Mm-hmm. And, they're, and they're scary looking, and they kill lots of people. That's why they want to. That's why they want to get rid of the bump stocks. That's why they want to reduce the magazine capacity. It drives me nuts that nobody. So all these lawmakers don't know don't know a single daggum thing about it, and they call them clips. These guns yeah. don't use clips. They use magazines. So that they're so they're trying to pass a law, and they they're, they don't even know to use the word magazine. It drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like, and this is the thing too. And I don't want to sound like some, you know, self righteous woke lord here, but <laughs> you know, there's there's a certain amount of racism in the gun debate in and of itself. Cause when you're focused on the assault rifle, you know, you're not focused on the weapons that are harming your, or how do I put this? When you're focused on the assault rifle, you, you are really focused on a, a, on a crime that affects white suburbia more than anything else. Well, yeah, that, and it's, it's just, even if you, if you take color out of it, it's not the biggest problem. Yeah, it's it's not the biggest problem. Assault weapons are not the biggest problem. No, and these are guns. the The guns that are are the ones that enter into uh, the black market via uh, gun shows, via theft, via uh, you know, via via person to person sales, and you know, tightening the loopholes around there, which is something that gun owners generally, on the whole, agree with would actually solve the problem of the types of gun violence that that contribute to the most murders. I, I, I do think, and I think most people have nuanced views about everything. You know, mo- when you get down to it with any issue, any contentious issue, uh, guns, abortion, uh, police reform, you know, there are there are very few people that sit on the extremes and yet we're forced into this false paradigm where for me to be even a little bit over the line in favor of one side automatically lumps me in with all those extremes. Yeah. Well, especially with social media too. Oh yeah. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. If you, if you talk to somebody in the real world, um, you know, about any, uh, hot button issue. Chances are you're, you you you'll probably have a good conversation. Yeah, I, I don't care what it is, even if you disagree on it. Like if you and I talked about abortion right now or whatever it was, we'll we'll have a good conversation. It helps that we know each other and we're friends and all that stuff. But I'm saying yeah. once you get on social media, oh my goodness, it's a whole other ball of wax. Oh yeah, 
one thing I, and I think I told you this story, I didn't ever say it on the podcast, but you know, when the Capitol riot was going on, um, you know, there was still, it was still very fuzzy as to what was happening. And one person complained. I saw one person on Twitter saying, showing a video and saying they're taking selfies with the rioters and they were really upset at it. And I said, and, and now in, again, in the fog of war, you know, here I am thinking if I am one Capitol policeman in the midst of a sea of rioters, you know, I'm probably going to try and deescalate as much as I can. That's right. And so I said, let's remember a good day is one where nobody gets shot. And that's what I said. I just said, let's not look for, you know, let's not look for people to get their heads bashed open. You know, let's just, let's remember that if the more people that get out of here safely, the better. And I will tell you, it was months and I was still getting hate for that. Like I was still getting people replying to it. My phone would blow. My phone would blow up with somebody liking, somebody trying to own me on Twitter. Um, and how dare you try to be rational, Dan? <laughs> well, and yeah, and and to an extent, somebody actually had a very thoughtful reply, where she said, "I know you're not a white supremacist, but here's." And she kind of very clearly explained her point of view, which was effectively that. The, they weren't, it wasn't an, that, that to her, it wasn't an expression of wanting there to be violence against the protesters. It was more a question of why do they get selfies and the Black Lives Matter protesters that were outside the White House over the summer get, you know, tear gas and batons. And, and I do think that there, I do think that's a legitimate case, but it's just Twitter's the wrong vehicle for yeah. that. It you know? is, it is. But by the same token, if if the people on January sixth all of a sudden started throwing chairs through the window mm-hmm. and and lighting the place on fire, I gotta believe that the police batons would have come out. I don't think I I think that they were overwhelmed, and I think they were doing what they could do to get the senators out. Um, yeah. I, and I do also. I am I am puzzled. I've talked with people who who don't quite see that the disparity between how the Capitol rioters were treated and how the, the peaceful protesters in front of the white house were treated mm-hmm. um, and don't see any issue with that. And, and I do think that I do think that there's a problem when you have people in office now trying to, trying to sugarcoat what happened in the Capitol and saying, Oh, it looked like a tour. You know, it's like that's a problem. Right. That, that should not right. happen. But but that, again that should it, not happen. And and the and the the you know the belief that these voting machines were rigged, you know, because that's yeah. what kicked off the whole thing. I mean, that was that was kind of crazy too. Oh gosh, yeah. Here's a, a question I have for you. You know, we've gone through a lot of you know, you've you've heard a lot. You've heard a lot on these episodes. Was there ever a topic that we didn't cover that you wish we had? You know me. I like I like third rail topics. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh I like, yeah. I like hot button topics like uh, like um, I mentioned abortion, but that's not really popular in in people's conversation right now. So yeah. um, that would certainly be a hot button one, but it may not be that current or timely. Um, you see, I listen to the show in two different ways too. With my left ear, I listen as a producer, and with my right ear, I listen as a fan. Yeah. So and but what the producer and the fan wants are not too far removed from each other. Um, 
you can you can never go wrong with topics that are that are edgy and some of the things we've talked about already like uh like uh police brutality police reform immigration's really hot right now um transgenderism it's really hot right now uh there's there's a in in that field abigail schreier i don't know if you know her she wrote a book that's really coming under fire right now um called irreversible damage the transgen- transgender craze seducing our daughters and just right there alone by the title she makes some good points she makes some good points in there yeah. but um but it's just even by the title it's it's a little inflammatory but any uh, any hot button topics i think are good to cover those are the ones that um uh that uh will really get people uh riled up uh either way yeah those those will be the ones that people start sending you emails and you know whether they're whether they're saying this is great or how could you have that guest on either way they're reacting to it and that's what we want we want people to get engaged yeah it's been a weird fine line for me because i think my the 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 goal of a lot of the uh, the goal of the podcast has always been to diffuse some of these arguments in a way and mm. say like like and basically say like why are we arguing about this you know is it something worth arguing over and a lot of times it isn't basically the way that the parties are structured is their base or the, the 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 partisan the most partisan in the parties serve as a way to get the most angry and the most polarized voters out and the moderates serve as a way to keep the most angry and the most polarized from driving off a cliff you know mm. and so if you look at the repeal of obamacare uh that was an inc- that was killed by one vote you know that's killed by john mccain and and I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if history reveals that John McCain knew he wasn't going to be around. The Republican Party, on the whole, didn't want to deal with the aftershocks of repealing Obamacare, and he was sort of the sacrificial lamb, you know, because he knew he didn't have an election to worry about. Yeah. And as far as like killing the filibuster, uh, you know, this is a case where again the the Democratic Party is arguing very vociferously for it but you've got mansion and cinema keeping that from happening and yeah, and i yeah. and i think i think it's because the parties know that they need it the democratic party on the whole knows they need the filibuster because some because when the tables are turned they're they're going to need that stopgap right but but the people you mentioned uh, mansion and and cinema and and uh, i was a huge fan huge fan of uh tulsi gabbard i thought she was she had her flaws the whole thing of assad was a little questionable but i thought she was awesome yeah um and uh, aside from looking like some disney villain with that with that uh, hair but anyway um but those but these are these are kind of moderate people and they get criticized a lot for not not putting on the party t-shirt Oh yeah, I mean the most hated people in Congress are are the ones who sit right in the middle. I mean, you look, you know, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema. You know, they 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 exist. Uh, they they're, they 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 almost are living without any friends because their own party throws tomatoes at them, and the opposition party would love to boot them and and looks at them as weak, and yet yeah. those are the people who keep 
uh, America from veering too far in one direction or the other. Well, yeah, I mean, I wish there were more of them. It didn't used to be like that either. It's getting worse. The, the problem is getting worse. It's tribalism. I mean, for many decades in America, most people have been centrist. If you imagine a bell curve, everyone knows what a bell curve looks like. Most of the people were in the middle. We politely disagree about maybe the amount that we should fund schools or maybe the amount we want to spend on infrastructure. But beyond that, most people agreed just about everything. And that was American history probably all the way up until, I would say, as far as the 90s. Where the country was a united states. It felt like we had common bond and, and values. But, but now the bell curve has been replaced by a bimodal curve, which looks like the camel humps. And the low-lying area in the middle are the centrists. They're, that's middle, middle America who just want to go to work and put food on their table. And don't think that voting machines are rigged or that the phrase good morning is racist. I mean, mm -hmm. these, are the, these are the reasonable people. I think that's exactly why this podcast exists and exactly why sometimes it's almost, you know, there, but I, I've disagreed with the number of the guests I've had on, um, but I always want to give them their space. You know, I always right. want to make sure they're able to, to make their case. And that philosophy is embodied in the, in the name of the show, which is, you know, all right, man, we can disagree, but hey, you don't have to yell. Exactly. Well, I don't know. It's not going to be the same without you, man. Not, not only, you know, for your, your voice in the background, you know, the, the work you put into making everything sound good and, and the work you put into like cutting it down to its bare essentials, but just having you along for the ride, man, it's been, yes, right. It's been awesome, man. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, and uh, you you deserve to go toe to toe with Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. I mean, yeah. you, you deserve you deserve his audience. So um. I got I got a ways to go, you know. <laughs> but 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 I yeah, man. But I really you know I really like. Obviously, I I you know in private I've said thank you for everything. I mean, it really like I I don't know, you know, when I started this, this was a, a real kind of like me against the world project, and and you being along really helped me keep going in a lot of cases and it's just not going to be as fun not having somebody to who hears every you know not having that 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 person there who can who you know can comment on on the guests we have or comment on the the topics we're covering and such you know but i'm, I'm still gonna I'm still going to ask you what, what you think of every episode when it comes out. So, Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I, and I, I'd like to still be involved on the periphery as well. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah, man. For everyone listening, the most as Dan says, the most important thing you can do is to go on your social media and share, make a post on your social media accounts and ask people to check out the show. That'll really help out. And, yeah. And also, Dan has mentioned this before, but if you have questions, comments, suggestions, if you want to talk to the man himself, Go to YDHTY.com. You do need the dub, dub, dub in front of it. Uh, scroll down to the bottom and you can contact the man himself right there. So, Dude, yep. wow, look at you. Plugging me on the way out. You're Prince. <laughs> all right, man. Well, any last... Now, you're going to... You're going to... Your fingerprints are going to be all over the next couple episodes. Any last words you want to leave the audience with? Oh, just... Keep listening and uh, just reiterate what I said a second ago. Yeah, just engage. This show is for you. So just please engage Dan. Uh, tell him what guests you'd like to see, what topics you'd like to see. 
And uh, um, yeah, the, uh, just getting more involved with the show and please spread the word. Yeah. Those of you who've contacted me know I'm pretty responsive. So, well, thank you again, man. And, uh, and this is not goodbye. This is see you when we have our weekly Zoom call on Monday. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that episode, and if you did, please leave it a review and share with all your friends, neighbors, relatives, and enemies. And if you're not a subscriber yet, what are you waiting for? There's a button right on your device. You click it, it says subscribe or follow, I've heard, and you will get a piping hot fresh episode of YDHTY delivered straight to your device every ding dang week. Now that out of the way, the big Gino will be leaving, soon to be gone never to be forgotten and I cannot thank the man enough for the work he's done making YDHTY what it is. Now, in the beginning, it was just me working in the dark and I was a shitty interviewer and all the spackle that Gino was able to put over the files I sent him really turned the earlier episodes of YDHTY into something special. And I will miss him dearly, although I know he will still be listening and still be sending me his notes each and every episode because that is the man he is. Now, whenever a major figure departs, the smartest thing to do is to follow the 1980s sitcom format and hire a cuter kid to replace that person. Now, while I am in the process of procuring that child, I am going to be launching season two of YDHTY this August because it is my podcast and I can make my seasons two years long if I want to. There are going to be some slight changes to the editorial format, but it will still be 100% focused on dismantling the us versus them narrative of American two-party politics and pushing for real reform. So stay tuned. In the meantime, to continue celebrating the centennial of YDHTY, I will be bringing back some of my favorite guests from the last two years over the month of July, ending the month with a very special guest I think y'all are going to dig. Hope to sense your presence there as I hit publish. As always, music is courtesy of QuellerTac. YDHTY's editorial advisor is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is still produced for a limited time only. By the Snake Killer, the Big Geno, Jason Putney, sweating his ass off in North Carolina, United States of America. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye.